of 1 Samuel. We'll just start with uh, remembering chapter 4. Uh, the ark has been captured by the Philistines. First, 4,000 men were slaughtered. Uh, that's when uh, Hophni and Phinehas was killed, and then they went back to battle. 30,000 more men were slaughtered, and that's when the ark was captured. They, uh, the runner runs and tells Eli that his two boys have been killed, fulfilling the prophecy of the Lord, fulfilling the prophecy that the, what the Lord told to us, Samuel. And then remember, Samuel falls backwards from his chair at the gate, and he dies. And so everything is coming to fruition just like the Lord says. And we'll put, pick up in verse 1 of chapter 5. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer. Remember, Ebenezer means stone of, of help. And this is 20 years before it will be called that. But he takes the, the ark to Ashdod, and that's about 19 miles south of Aphek where they're at. When the Philistine took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Now, Dagon was the principal god of the Philistines. And I don't know how many of you know this, but Dagon, they say, was the, is the father of Bel. Everybody thinks that Bel is the principal god, but it's truly Dagon. And Bel is the storm god, the god of nature. And that's, that's the main trouble that the children of Israel got into, worshiping Bel and worshiping Ashtoreth. And what's happening now, now that the Philistines have defeated the children of Israel in this battle, they take the ark and they put it in the shrine or at the temple of Dagon. Because when you would go to battle against another tribe, another area, you were really fighting against their God. So whoever won the battle, the fame and the glory of their God was more... Uh, just magnified. And back in this culture, everybody, there was no atheist, didn't believe in God. There was no agnostic. I don't know if there is a God. Everyone believed in a God or several gods. So when they would go to war, whoever won, they would magnify that God. That's why they take the ark and they put it in the temple of Dagon. So even though the Ark of the Covenant is captured. We know that the God of Israel is not. He's a man of war, and he's going to show himself strong even when the children of Israel, they're walking in disobedience. Verse 3, he says, And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, so I don't know how quickly or how often they would go into these shrines, but since the Ark is there, everybody wants to sit and everybody wants to to, to be proud of their God. So it seems as if they go straight to the temple. And it says, there was Dagon fallen. Do you have those pictures, Mark, of Dagon? Okay, thank you. The only reason I'm showing you this picture, that reminds me of a movie. Uh, what's the movie with the big guy? Aquaman. Uh, they might have got that from there. But... You'll, he'll show you the other one in a minute when he's fallen. But anyway, it says, There was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And people always say, anytime you have to pick your God up, you have the wrong God. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. So his body is dismembered at this time. His head is cut off. His hands of his palms is cut off. And uh, the Lord is trying to show them that he's more powerful. He's the omnipotent God than this false God. Therefore, Neither the priest of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. 
So Yahweh is making a lasting effect, but we will see there's no repentance here. Verse 6, but the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. The Septuagint adds there was rats that infested the land, and, and a lot of scholars say that caused the bubonic plague. Some people say it was just tumors. Some say it was a, a inflammatory limp noise that was all over their bodies. We don't know what it was, but it was a devastating plague that was happening. And really, here God is showing grace to the children of Israel because remember, the children of Israel, they were walking in disobedience to God at this time. And God has said, all of these blessings will overcome you if you follow me. But all of these curses will overtake you and these plagues will overtake you if you don't follow me. Deuteronomy 28, 58 through 66, 60 says this. If you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, and serious and prolonged sicknesses. Moreover, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. So once again, most scholars say that these rats came in, and it will testify that a few, later, few verses down, and this is how the plague starts. Verse 7 tells us, And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us, and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines. Of the five cities, the, the lords, the sirens, they get together, the rulers of those cities, and they begin to talk about what should they do with this God of Israel? And said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered. Now notice what they say. Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. There's five cities. You would think by now, they would say, no, let's let it go. Tell the children of Israel, come get this thing. The reason they don't do that, the reason they take it from city to city, they're thinking, well, maybe this won't happen in the next city. And this, these things are happening by chance or happenstance. So it, it's amazing that they don't give up right here, but they're still trying to hold on to the glory of Dagon since they say he defeated the God of Israel. So that's why they're going to take it from city to city in Philistine territory. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. Verse 9, so it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city. So this is Gath right here with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. This is up north. So their reputation, the reputation of the ark is already being heard of. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out saying, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there, and the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now, I'm sure that as they get together this time, when the, when the first time they got together at Gath, I wonder, was the Lord of the Philistine there when they made the decision to go to Ekron? Because he should have piped up and said, hey, no, 
We need to do something with it instead of bringing it to my city. But they don't do that. Once again, they're trying to prove that this is just by chance that the God of Israel is doing these things because they don't want to bow down to Yahweh. And so they're having to go to each city to make sure the same thing will happen here. Chapter 6, he tells us in verse 1, Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. That's how obstinate, that's how prideful they were because they didn't want Dagon to be defeated. And the Philistines called for the priests, so they finally called for the priests and the diviners. It reminds me of when Pharaoh called for the Egyptians' uh, diviners, saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. We give up. We don't want it around here anymore. So they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. That's a guilt offering or a sin offering. They know that much, they think, but they're going to err badly on this also. Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Remember, it's been there seven months. Then they said, what is this trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. By offering... The sacrifice that they are offering here, five golden rats and five golden tumors. Remember, these are unsaved men. They know nothing about Yahweh God, but what it shows more than that, they don't understand the depravity of sin. The, uh, people talk and speak about the Bible that it's a bloody religion, and truly it is. Because it's the blood, the life is in the blood. And that's what it takes, the blood of Jesus Christ leading up all the way through the Old Testament to the New Testament. Because the blood of bull and goats, Hebrews tells us, all that could do is cover sins. But it was a picture of the coming of Jesus Christ. His perfect blood would be shed to cleanse us of our sins. So it shows me they don't understand their sin. They don't understand the depravity of sin, that it can't, sin can't be covered over with money or silver and gold. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. Peter says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, there it is, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. That's what it takes to cleanse us of our sins, the blood of Jesus Christ. But what they were saying, we have offended this God. We're not repentant of our sin, but we, we're, we apologize for offending you because his anger has aroused and he's taking vengeance on these people because of what they, they've done. So they're sorrowful, but they're not repentant. And that reminds me of 2 Corinthians when Paul says, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. If we, if we are truly repentant of our sins, it should lead to a change of heart. Because if it's just, I'm sorry I got called, I'm sorry I won't do it again, but you do it right, uh, right again, well, that's not true repentance. That's what he's saying here. Verse 5, therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Notice what he says, perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? So they must have not did this right away. They must have said this before. 
when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? So it seems, once again, as if they're hard-headed, as if they're obstinate, and they want really they don't want to do this, not wanting to admit that they're wrong, not wanting to submit, not wanting to, they're not wanting to surrender to the God of Israel. They don't want to bow down to his majesty, to his power, and who he is, of who he is. And it reminds me of Romans chapter 1 when Paul begins to talk about also the depravity of man. And we have this inner knowledge that we are sinful people, but we suppress the truth. And Paul says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because of what may be known of God is manifest in them. They know they're sinful beings, for God has shown it to them. He says, for, the, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. That's what he's revealing to the Philistines right here. So that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Common sense would tell me if I'm serving an idol that I call a God and then another God comes on the scene that's more powerful, that's more awesome, it wouldn't be a problem for me to say, hey, I'll start serving this God until another God comes on the scene that's more powerful than him, which we don't have to worry about, Yahweh. But they enjoyed their sin because with the God of Baal and the God of Ashtoreth, it was a lot of sexual immorality going on. And so they just enjoyed their sin and they didn't want to turn to a holy, living, true God. So he says at the latter part of verse 6, why then do, do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? Verse 7. Now, therefore, make a new cart, take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. The Philistines are holding on until the last straw is broken. Because even after the diviners tells them what to do, they're stacking the odds against Yahweh God. Because remember, these two uh, cows, they have never been yoked. They have never pulled a cart. They have just had these calves. So the natural thing, the instinctive thing to do I'm not pulling these carts going somewhere I've never been. I'm going back to my calves. So they were really thinking it's not going to work. So this is, once again, this is happenstance. This is by chance that these plagues have happened to us. That's exactly why they do what they do here. But God is in control. It says in verse 8, Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side, then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he, Yahweh, has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, you're banging your head against the wall but they're still trying to find a way out where they don't have to bow the knee to this holy God. And they don't want to be embarrassed that this God has come in and, and just taken control. Verse 10, then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. 
Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. Now, if you know anything about cows, if you know anything about really horses, they usually don't do this. They usually meander to one way or the other. But this is supernatural what's going on right here because God is in this. God not only gave those 10 plagues to the Egyptians to set the children of Israel free, but he also wanted to save the Egyptians also. God shows no partiality. He wants to save even these Philistines, but they have a hard heart and they they don't want to bow down to the Lord. And the lords of the Philistine went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. They made sure that it went there and they turned around. Verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh, which is about 15 miles uh, north to Jerusalem, because that's where the final resting place, we all know, the ark will land. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. So this had to be around May or June. And they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the, ark, then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Verse 15, the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistine had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day, and I'm sure they were relieved. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden rat according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh, speaking of Yahweh God. I believe they took the top off that little small chest that had the five tumors and the five rats in it. If you think back with me, these are cities of refuge here. These six cities of refuge were for the Levites. They knew the law. They knew what they should and shouldn't do. Remember, they carried the ark and the articles in the temple. So they knew all of these things. I I don't know why they would do this, but they did. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with the great slaughter. Now, there's a controversy here. Some scholars say that's too many people, 50,070 people. There wasn't that many people. They meant 70 men. Other people say it was 50,000 people in the area and the 70 men were slaughtered. But I believe the number is exactly what the Lord says it is because once again, before the ark was captured, 4,000 men were slaughtered first. God didn't say a great slaughter took place there. But I just read when the 30,000 men were slaughtered and the ark was captured, he said that was a great slaughter. Now with these 50,070 men, once again, the Holy Spirit says this was a great slaughter. If there were only 70 men slaughtered, why would he say it was a great slaughter? So I think it was exactly what he said it was. 50,070 men were slaughtered. Verse 20, and the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand? 
before this holy Lord God, Yahweh God. And to whom shall it go up from us? They first, they wanted it there. When they thought they could have it their way and do whatever they wanted to around this ark. And that's the way we are. We invite the Lord in. But then when he begins to rearrange the furniture and begin to rearrange our lives, we have a hard time with that. But if we're true believers, we should allow the Lord to have his way. He sits on the throne of our hearts. He does what is best. I tell you guys all the time, you can Think of, say, a lot of character, different characteristics of God. But around that throne, the one thing they say 24-7 is he's holy. He's holy. He's holy. And he wants to preside in, holy, in these holy temples of ours. It says, so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kerjath jerem saying, the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Get rid of it. It reminds me of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. When they, the Bible says, first, uh, the Holy Spirit tells us they offered strange fire to the Lord. And that's kind of hard to figure out. But the reason they offered strange fire, if you continue to read, is because they were drunk. And so they got careless and offered the wrong thing, and God did away with them. It says this in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3 of Leviticus. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. The only kind of devouring I think that rivals what the Holy Spirit says here is when the fiery furnace, they put Sherat, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and then one comes and looks in first, and he gets devoured. Quickly, you're burned up. And it devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, imagine Aaron, his two sons. He sees this. This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, set apart. I'm different. I'm altogether lovely. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Are we living like that? It's kind of easy to live like that when you get in these four walls. But when we're at home by ourselves, when we're out on the job site, whenever we're doing what we're doing, do we, are we regarding him as holy? He will, God will overlook a lot of things, but he's not going to let me and he's not going to let you defame who he is. He's not going to do that. Chapter 7, three chapters tonight. Then the men of kerjath jerem came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. Now, we're not told whether Abinadab is a priest or his son is a priest or not. I know Exodus 6.3 says this, Aaron took to himself Elishaba, daughter of Abinadab, sister of Nashon, as wife, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. I don't know if they're kin there or not. So it was, verse 2, that the ark remained in kerjath jerem a long time. It was there 20 years. In other words, it was there 20 years before Samuel starts his ministry. Because when all these, these three chapters are going on right here, we don't hear a word from Samuel. But after these 20 years, Samuel, his first public ministry, will begin. And actually, the ark was there at Kerjath-Jerim for 100 years. It's going to stay there because, remember, Shiloh gets destroyed. So they take it here 
and it will stay there until David brings it to Jerusalem. It says, and all the house of Israel lamented. They were mourning after the Lord. Samuel is called the bridge builder because he's building a bridge from where he speaks of the judges, the time of the judges, because he was a judge also, all the way to the monarchy of Saul, because the people are wanting a king. And so Samuel is the bridge builder here. God has his man. Samuel has a heart for God. And now the people are mourning. They are restless. They are beginning to want to know the one true God again. And this is a great opportunity for Samuel to begin to speak to them. He says in verse 3, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel. Remember, he's a prophet and he's a judge, saying, If you return, the Hebrew word, we know the word in, in the Greek is metanoia, change the mind. The Hebrew word is shov, shavuv. It means to turn back the same thing. Because the children of Israel in general had turned away from the Lord. How do I know their hearts had turned away from the Lord? Because their actions are letting us know they're worshiping other gods. They're not, not, they're not seeking Yahweh anymore. And so we know that their hearts have turned away from the Lord. He's just saying, if you return, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, Romans 10.10 tells us, for with the heart, your innermost being, who you are, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The heart will always make a convert of the mind. If you have it here, if you believe here, and you don't have it in your innermost being, you haven't truly given your life to the Lord, it hasn't taken. Because what's up here doesn't really count. You can't follow the Lord up here. It's not with the mind that you believe. It's with the heart. It's your very being who you are when you give your life to the Lord. And then it takes. The proof is in the walking. That's why it says Samuel exhorts them. He challenges them. Then put away the foreign gods. Return to the Lord. And in your turning, you will do this. Put away the foreign gods, the Ashtaroth, from among you. He says, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. The Old Testament is nothing but pictures. I learned this from John Corson, and I love the saying. is nothing but pictures of a New Testament principle. Everything that we're looking at when he begins to speak of repentance and changing your mind and all of these things, the principle is in Romans 6, uh, verses 12 through 13. This is what it says. Because the Philistines, the children of Israel are slowly being subjugated by the Philistines. And the reason the children of Israel are, be, are going into bondage to the Philistines, they cannot overtake them, they cannot overpower them, is because they're not following Yahweh God. And that's what this principle is. That's why Paul says by the Holy Spirit, therefore. And the reason he says therefore, before that he says you've been baptized into Christ Jesus. You have died and you was raised in newness of life. If that really has happened, you should walk in newness of life by the Spirit. Since it has taken, therefore, this is what else should happen. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That's how you flesh it out. I'm a believer. I shouldn't be, oh, I slipped up here, I slipped up there. I'm not in my word. I'm not in, in, my, in prayer. But I just can't defeat this sin. I just can't defeat this bondage. 
that shouldn't be. Once again, if Romans hasn't taught me anything else, it's taught me this, it has taught me this. Not only that Christ Jesus came and set me free from sin, but he's delivered me from the bondage of sin. That's power. Once again, how would it look that I'm set free and I'm on my way to heaven, but for 50, say 60 years, I live down here in bondage to my sin. I'm not good to anyone but the hypocrite if I'm living like that. All I'm doing is defaming God's name because I'm not walking and I'm not living in victory. So this is important. And that's what's happening to the children of Israel right here. They've been following the bells and the asteroids, and finally they're becoming restless and they begin to mourn and lament because they're in bondage. That happened all the way through the book of Judges. They're just coming out of it with Samuel. And so once again, they cry out to God. And if they have a true heart, guess what? God will deliver them and they can walk in victory. That's why I'm reading this. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God, living sacrifices, as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Here I am, God. Use me. Do with me, with me whatever you want. For sin, he says it twice here, for sin shall not have dominion, rule over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. God's grace has been given to me that we, God's grace has been given to you that we may live holy lives. The grace of God, Titus, the grace of God that brings salvation, it does what? It teaches us something. Everybody loves grace. I missed the mark here. I transgressed here. I was crooked there, but I have the grace of God. Yes, that's true. But it's more than that, Victor. The grace of God teaches me that I can live soberly and righteously in this present age. I have everything for life and godliness. That's what he's saying here. Verse 4, so the children of Israel put away the bells and the ashtoreth and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, the watchtower, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. Now, when it says it drew, they drew water, this is a, a sign that this is probably the Feast of Tabernacles. Because remember, Feast of Tabernacles originally wasn't like this. When they used, used at the beginning, when they inaugurated the Feast of Tabernacles, they wouldn't march all the way up singing the Hallel hymns, psalms and pour out water on that great day, that eighth day. They didn't start doing that till Jesus' day. But they're pouring out water right here. And when they pour out this water, it signifies when, G when, when Yahweh was leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. Remember when Moses spoke to the rock and the water came out? Then he hit the rock. Hit the rock first, and he spoke to the rock, hit the rock again, and the water came out. That's what they're signifying here. God is our provider. Do we really believe that? That God is our provider? I keep this when the money in my heart, when the money gets low, and in the summer hour house, the money is always low. David said, I was young and now I am old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. That's the promise. 
and he's right. I've always had, we've always had what we needed and then some. God is my provider. I don't look to Calvary Store. I don't look to Brookdale. I don't look to my mama. I look to Yahweh God. And he's always, in 61 years, he's always come, come through. And that's the God we serve. And so that's why they're pouring out this water right here. Also, in it, it says, and they fasted that day because remember, right after the Feast of Tabernacle, the next feast was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the only true time that the children of Israel should have fasted. Other times they did, they didn't have to, but this was mandatory on the Day of Atonement. And it says, and they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned and confess your sins, so I'm pretty sure this is it, against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. The Philistines, uh, the children of Israel, they did not have a standing army at this time. They would rally together when they had to and fight, but a standing army they didn't have. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Psalms 27 tells us, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of our, our Lord, our God, the name of the Lord, our God. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. As he sacrifices the evening sacrifice at this time. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered, answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. Notice what happens. But the Lord thundered with the loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. Remember, Baal, the God of the storm, the fertility God, the God of rain, the God of wind. God says, let me show you who all of these things belong to, who has power over all of these things. It reminds me, if you can think back when we were going through the book of Judges, can't think of the judge right now. It might have been Othanel. But they're battling, and it's this little stream that the Philistines go through, and they're swampland, and they're going to fight the children of Israel. And God makes a miracle happen in this stream, and it drowns all of the Philistines there. That's the kind of God we serve. He does the same thing here. He says, I will take the hornet and the bee and defeat your enemies only if you follow me, only if you walk with me. Verse 11, and the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as, be as below Beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called his name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So there's the name of it. We need signposts. It's good to have signposts in your life. When God works a miracle, when God does something great, I'm reminded when the children of Israel, the priest goes through the Jordan, and as the, the, the water is stopped from Adam, I think on one side and from Zen on the other side, he says, make 12 stones in the river. And then he gets on the other side. When he gets to the other side of Gilgal, he says, make 12, put 12 stones here to remember what the God of Israel has done in your life. We all need to remember those, those uh, signposts and those marks when God has done something great in our lives. 
just a few, I remember when Erica and Lydia was estranged for a while, and we were praying, and we were praying. And then all of a sudden, God made that happen, a signpost, a wonderful work of the Lord. I'm reminded of Marilyn with her daughter, how God just, he does miracles. I'm reminded of me when I had that aneurysm, and ain't no way I should be here, but God does a miracle, and I can proclaim many more. And, and the reason God does those things, when hard times do befall us, we can look back at his faithfulness and what he's done, and he will always come through in our lives. And so they set up these stones, and sometimes you can have those bad memories. I'm, I'm reminded of the, uh, uh, the, the stones, the heap of stones they put up at Akbar when Achan stole that Babylonian wedge and that robe and that piece of silver and his whole family was stoned because of that. We need to remember all of the good things and remember the bad things when we erred and what happened that the Lord has done for us. Verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. Now, this is the sad part. All the days of Samuel. God is no respecter of people. But that just goes to show Samuel's heart. God is still seeking and looking for men and women, boys and girls, that will be wholly devoted to him. That he will speak to us and bless us. And just like Samuel, the Bible says none of his words fell to the ground. And it can be the same thing with us if we follow the Lord with our whole heart. I started with Romans. I'm going to end with Romans. Romans chapter 6, 11 through 14. This is what it says. Likewise, you also reckon or account yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, once again, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. We have the power to do it. Verse 14. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territory from the hand of the Philistines. Joel 2.25 says this. A promise that God speaks to the children of Israel, but his principle belongs to us also. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army, which I sent among you. Charles Spur Spurgeon says this. He says, you cannot have back your time but there is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give you back, can give back to you the wasted blessings, the unripened fruits of, of years over which you mourned. The fruits of wasted years may yet be yours. God is a loving God, and that's how he works. Also, the latter part of verse 14, also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Proverbs tells us when a man ways please the Lord, he will make your enemies be at peace with you because the Ammonites were always, Amorites were always in battle with the children of Israel, but not at this time. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. As he makes this circuit, that's how he's going to look 
and behold Saul, and he's going to be the first king of Israel. They wanted, they wanted a king, and they're going to get a king. And we're going to find out, and we probably already know, Samuel's going to be more upset about it than God. It doesn't matter if they receive a king, if they have a king or not, as long as they look to Yahweh as their true king. And that's the way it should be in our lives. Yes, we have a job. Yes, we have things to do. But as long as we keep God, Jesus Christ, the only wise king on the throne of our hearts, he'll take care of everything else. Let's pray. Father, would you take these three chapters and uh, may they resonate not only in our mind, Father God. Our mind can be thinking about different things, Lord. But may those words filter into our hearts. May we remember that as long as we sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts, that you're going to take care of the rest. Lord, you've given us liberty. You, liberty. you said there's liberty in Christ Jesus. But are we walking in that liberty? Father, I pray, just like Samuel, Lord, that we will seek you with our whole heart, that we won't be busy about many of things. Yes, we all live busy lives, but what's most important is our personal walk with you, allowing you to pour in our hearts. Father, once again, I lift up those that are sick, those that are hurting, Father. I pray that you would Touch them, Lord, that you would heal those that are sick, that you would heal those that are hurting. Father, you say you're the God that healeth thee, and that's what you're, we're asking for, that you would give those that are hurting a quality of life, that you would touch them, Father. Lord, those that are having a hard time making ends meet, Lord, I pray, I know that you will provide. I ask that you would show yourself strong in their lives. Lord, and those that are too busy to get into your word, Father, with that still, small voice of yours, I pray that you will call them back to sweet communion, sweet fellowship with you, Father God, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of who you are. Lord, I pray for the protection of CR, that you would keep us safe, that we would be a vibrant church, that we would be a church, Lord, that loves you with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and love one another as ourselves, Father God. That when one hurts, we all hurt. And when one uh, glorifies you and our, our rejoices, that we all rejoice because we are linked to one another, Father God. We ask you to come and have your way here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.